1: 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a
0: month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com.
3: Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Looney, And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers Podcast. Are you feeling patriotic? You're going to sing I the national anthem or rule Britannia? Patriotic
2: and scandalous as well. Yes. Well, it's it's a subject that interests me because I was born in Kenya uh, and my father knew many of the people that we're going to talk about. Uh, I don't and, think I, knew, I don't think I ever knew that. Uh, no, I'm full of surprises. So um, so I'm very interested to hear what uh, our guest has to say about all this, and uh, it's a subject that's interested me for a long time.
3: Yes, well, before we get on to that, though, we should explain that we're doing a week, well, two programs in a week, on the th- loosely themed around the darker side of empire.
2: Um, yeah, and we're moving to doing two programs a week because a lot of people have asked us if we would do that. Uh, and um, it, this is an experiment. If if we have lots of likes and subscribes as a result of uh, going two, twice weekly, then we'll carry on. Uh, and if it doesn't work and we don't really... Build our listeners, then we will go back to once a week because we yeah, have a book to yeah. write. We've both got books to write.
3: Yes, we, we have. A, we do have our day jobs, um, and yeah, we're just for two or three weeks. We're going to try and do two episodes, see how that goes, because the numbers do keep creeping up. You know, we're getting six, seven, eight thousand downloads a week. Um, last week's show, you know, only got sixteen hundred views on YouTube, but something like five thousand people watched YouTube last week, so. Um, Anne brought in a, quite a big crowd and she was such fun <laughs> uh, I, I, I know you've been looking at comments but uh, I have to say one is, uh, R- Rachel Marx said is anybody going to mention that this amazing sharp vibrant woman and the is 97 years old what a cool cat I wish I was, no, I want to be like her when I grow up, don't we all yeah, she
2: is amazing, no we must have her back she's very, very, great turns of phrase great researcher and writer and um, great fun
3: yeah, so if you well, if you liked Anne, and if you're one of the people listening, um, please don't forget to like the shows, to subscribe to the shows. It's free. Help us spread the word. Every little like matters, especially on YouTube.
2: Yeah, it does. And I've been, you've been very good, Philip, responding to comments. I've been less good, so I've made up for that this week and gone through a number of comments. And what I find so fascinating is often you learn new things from what people say. So, for example, You Keep Walking, two weeks ago uh, after we did Prince Andrew, said a friend of mine dated staff from the British Embassy in Bangkok who had some stories of the nefarious activities Andrew got up to while there as trade envoy. They had to book two hotel rooms for him, one official and one off the record. Really? Goodness me. So, you know, you learn a lot from from people. Are you in touch with this person? Uh, well, I'd love to hear from you. Keep walking. Uh, I, I, I'm very difficult to know how to get in touch with them. So um, I have responded. And then I'm going, going through the comments. Another one three weeks ago from Jane Buckland, 737. I love the gentle, easy mix and the fat based stuff. Great listening. So I think we should call ourselves e- Easy Listening History. <laughs> yeah, with and a then... classic
3: FM of podcasts, something we to put are. on to, to, to sort of lull you to sleep after a, a,
2: a tiring day. We're the Radio 2 of, of podcasts. <laughs> um, and then Etch A Sketch, three weeks ago, I appreciate your inquisitive and in-depth approach, and you provide the perfect mix of raw history and gossip. Let's face it, it's difficult to separate the two. That's very true. Um, that is very true. And then Tina Jess, 859, best show on YouTube. I look you forward to it every Monday, midweek show, to help us get through the week. All right. My Tina. turn, Julia Alexandra,
3: 9, 180. I never miss an episode since subscribing. There you go. Isn't that lovely? Good. Okay. We should take turns, One each. <laughs> I think we probably we've probably shown off got... enough for one day. But, no, go no on. we've got go enough.
2: On. I've got to save these for next week then. All right. Uh, what have we got? Um, yeah. Well, Please we are actually,
3: you know, I keep an eye on the charts. We're also in the Apple charts again this week um, in uh, Finland, in New Zealand, in Australia, and once again in Bahrain. What's going on in Bahrain? If you are that one listener in Bahrain, please be in touch. We'd love to know. Yes, we'd love to know. Yes,
2: absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. in in, in some ways, sorry, Andrew, an Empire story will hopefully will appeal to a lot of people who live abroad, and we have a amazing range of people from sort of Turkish Cyprus through to Germany. We do.
3: Yes. Well, let's talk a bit about Empire because. Um, I mean, I'll have a bit more to say about this when we do the next programme, the one on the Suez Crisis. Yeah. Well, then but, then you can know, talk the, about the the pros and cons of, of the British Empire and all empires, such a big talking point today. Um, and yeah, it is a big part of the book that I'm currently working on about the end of the Second World War. Um, I mean, I'm in no doubt, as far as World War Two was concerned, Britain's role, the empire's role, was important, good, essential to defeat, you know, unprecedented evil. But even then, some of those darker aspects of imperialism started to shine through towards the end of the war. And it, if, if researching this book has taught me anything, it's, it's really important to look at Britain not just through the eyes of the British, but through the eyes of the rest of the world and especially Britain's subjects. And they didn't, didn't always look at Britain in the same way we do, even during World War II. You know, we like to think that Britain was the plucky underdog. Well, that's not quite how we were seen around the world at all. Um, over Overdogs, that's sometimes bully so both these stories take place during or just after the the, um, the second world war and i think that that world where a lot of people know it's all kind of come to an end but they're still behaving perhaps in the in the style that they become accustomed to both personally in kenya and politically when they start trying to push around egypt in suez so it's uh, it's a lot of meaty stuff coming
2: yeah, well it's a new perspective. Well I've got a, a sort of unusual fact in that the the man who's a suspect in in the murder case we're going to talk about, uh his granddaughter has a connection with Fergie, used to work for Sarah Duchess of York, uh, and is now married to Hans Rousing, who's a very wealthy philanthropist. So characters come in and out of the story in different different uh, um aspects.
3: Well, I'd like to know just a bit more about your connections to Kenya because and maybe you can then set up our uh, guest because uh he's actually quite a
2: coup yes james fox i've known for a while he's the, the, the probably the the expert on the errol murder case which was a uh a, still an unexplained murder in kenya during the second world war and my father went out to to kenya just after the war as a magistrate he we talk about mama he was actually one of the magistrates up country dealing with mama uh and um so many of these characters, they talk about the Mithaga Club and, and, and other places. These are places that he, he used to go to. And my mother worked for the Belgian consulate. So she, um, she had dealings too, not so much with, with the Errol case, but with other things that were happening in, in Africa in this period in the fifties and sixties. And then we came back after independence. That was the, that was the end and went elsewhere. All
3: right. So you so, are
2: actually a child of empire, really. I'm a child of Empire, yes. When I put, put, I wasn't able to give blood because they thought that I, because I was born in Africa, um, I might have AIDS or something. Golly. Golly. So when I put, I come from a minority, I, I, I say Church of Scotland, born in Kenya. And that's given me a big leg up in life.
3: Excellent. Well, I have never knew that. All right. Well, um, who fancies a bit of white mischief on the tropical? Yes.
2: Stuff? Great title. Let's well, go we, to white
3: mischief. We do love our misbehaving aristocrats.
2: All right. See you soon. See you. Bye. So, Thanks. James, I'm delighted to have James Fox with us today, who is the author of the classic account of the Errol murder case, which I think you began researching in 1969. Is that right?
4: That would be about right, yeah.
2: And, and tell us what the case is, because a lot of our listeners, particularly abroad, won't know about the story uh, and, and the fact it's still really an unexplained mystery, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the great unsolved mysteries, although I got pretty close,
2: I think. In I think fact, so too.
4: I think later in the podcast you may have more evidence to show how much closer I am. But it started, it was in 1941, the height of the Blitz. Out in Kenya Colony, um, there were several characters having a wonderful time. One of them wasn't having a wonderful time. He was the military secretary, Lord Errol, but recently arrived was a guy called Sir Dolls Jock Broughton with a young wife, Diana. And they all got together and danced and drank and had a, in the Mathega Club in Nairobi. And to cut a long story short, um, Errol took up pretty quickly with Diana. Diana took up with him. And uh, sometime later, and, and the pact was made. Broughton said, I'm an old man, doesn't matter, you know, uh, I quite see that this is a fait accompli, um, I'll just go away and be quiet. But then there was, there was sort of rumblings and evidence he wasn't quite taking this lying down. And let's say a uh, few weeks later, Errol's body was found with a bullet in his head in his car in the suburb of Curran. Um, Broughton was charged with the murder and acquitted mostly on ballistics evidence. And that's why it's been a mystery ever since. You know, who actually did it? Was it him? What happened? Um, so I got onto this story to revive it then for the Sunday Times.
2: With Cyril Connolly?
4: Well, yes, we, we, we were having a, a, one of those sort of editorial sessions. What can we do? Can we get Connolly to write something? Because he was a literary critic on the Sunday Times. Great distinguished literary character, uh, you know, who wouldn't normally sort of uh, descend to kind of popular crime stories. But um, in this series of Unsolved Mysteries, you know, could we do the Errol murder? I knew about the Errol murder because I'd been in Nairobi as a reporter and I tried to, to sort of, I asked the news editor, "Let's, let's you know, I was very young. This is a story that hasn't sort of, you know, can we do it? And he said, don't touch that. Just don't touch that story. That's going to cause real problems, which excited my interest. Um, Cyril Connolly was obsessed about it because all the people involved in it, some of them had been eaten with him, the eaten that he described in, in his various books. And so we got together, this young reporter as I was, you know, working with Cyril Connolly, the great Cyril Connolly. It was really quite Exciting, intimidating, worrying. And we produced this article in the Sunday Times magazine, which didn't solve the murder, but it certainly told an awful lot about it. And it told a lot about the period. And then Connolly died, left me all his papers. And 10 years later, I produced a book with all his stuff and my stuff called White Mischief, which did well and caught attention. And um, so that's what what we're talking about now, the book White Mischief, uh, then became a sort of byword. The, the title became a byword for all kinds of misbehavior in foreign lands by white people. Um, it also became a very good headline for anyone wanting to sell lingerie and various other <laughs> things. <laughs> can I, can I, I just say, film.
3: a lot of people won't know um, that you also work with Keith Richards. Yes. I a wonderful
4: I, I... book. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I, I'd
3: love to know, because I'd love to know. I've read both of them. Wh- which was the more scandalous circle, the Rolling Stones in the 60s and 70s or the British aristocracy in Kenya in the 40s?
4: Well, the British aristocracy caused more shock, um, I think, because because they were behaving so badly. And there was a war on. Everyone was trying, you know, Stones caused a certain amount of shock. You got used to that. It, it was a decade, four decades of shock. And... Um, I must say, uh, when I read a little bit of the um, later evidence that I got in this book, I think you'll be more shocked by how they behaved than Keith behaved, basically. So
3: this was a very dissolute group of wealthy young English men and women who found themselves in Kenya for whatever reason, and they were notorious long before this murder, weren't they, for decades?
4: for just Well, it was uh, not quite as simple because way back in, in the 20s, <clears throat> the early settlers had come out to Kenya, like Lord Delamere and people like that, and and acquired a huge tracts of land, which the family still owns incredibly. Uh, And there were frontiersmen and farmers, but they were aristocrats. They'd all been to Eton, this and that. Um, That was the 20s and 30s. So my book was about looking back on that. And by the time the 40s had come, it had been got this reputation from the 20s and 30s of being a sort of remittance man's paradise. Younger sons who weren't doing well, you know, rakes and rogues and all these people would go out there and behave really badly. It was called a living, what they called a a life of make-believe in a remittance man's paradise was the phrase used. (laughs) And a lot of drinking and a lot of drug-taking too, early drug-taking. And... um, uh, some of the characters lived in a place called the Wangjoe Valley in Happy Valley in the White Highlands, and it was said, you know, by the wags at the time that the Wangjoe River ran with cocktails. You know, that's that's the sort of reputation that it got.
3: And what about the African people themselves, the Kenyans themselves? How what was the general attitude towards these kind of colonists? <laughs> This well, I think lifestyle.
4: it must have I, I think it must have been very bad. I mean, one of the reasons why I was interested in this story was partly I was a journalist and I'd grown up with a certain kind of attitude to all this. I wasn't gonna, you know, this was this was decolonization. I found that exciting and exhilarating, and uh, you know, and so I was quite interested to see all these people who survived all this and, and what they were up to. And the um attitude uh, can only have been, I mean, they're extraordinarily tolerant. These people. I've got a handbook here. I've got a Swahili phrase book published in the 1950s, which is a, a, a sort of handbook for the men's of how to treat their African servants, how to talk to them. And there isn't a single polite phrase in this book. It's all admonishments and complaints and didn't do this and that, and you're stupid and all this kind of, that was the sort of, it can't have been good, is the answer to your
2: question. And and when you were, began to research the book, Kelly, most of the people involved were still alive, so you were yes, able to interview them.
4: They were Diana Delamere was was alive. She was living on the coast. Tom Delamere, her husband. Um. Yes, he was. He was much. He was younger than that. Um. And a lot of the f- people were still there a- after independence. Yeah, I had a lot of witnesses, people who remembered it, people in the Mitha Club. And indeed, some of the African servants who I talked to, who were scared, very scared of talking to me, you know.
2: And so, Jock uh, Adeles Broughton was acquitted, and and what happened after that? I mean, what was the, the the story then? Sort of blew up again when you published the book in in the early eighties. Uh, and what was the reaction to it? For example, did other people come forward?
4: Um. Not for not not immediately. Uh, it it stirred up a lot of stuff. Um, it was a sort of sensation, actually, uh, in a way. And the extraordinary thing was my relationship with Diana Delamere, who was the femme fatale of of this whole thing. I never thought I was ever going to get to talk to her, uh, and I did. And I describe in, in in the book how I sort of worked out how flights from Nairobi, I got some information, I uh, stalked her and this and that and, and doorstepped her. And I felt my heart beating, thinking this is the center of my story. I've got to talk to this woman. The door opened and there she was. And I introduced myself. And later on to excuse herself for talking to me, she said, oh, I thought you were the hat maker, Frederick Fox. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> uh,
2: but she thought, was happy to talk.
4: Uh, what? She was happy to talk to you. Well, she wasn't that happy to talk. I mean, I had to go away and wait to see what this reaction was, was going to be. And the fascinating thing about Dana Delamere, and to show how intelligent she was and how she got out of this whole mess by sheer skill and cunning uh, in, in her later years, was that all her friends are saying, you mustn't talk to this guy. You know, it's really bad. This is a scandal. You want to, you want to just shut the whole thing down, call your lawyers. She, um, went against all their advice, which is clever of her and talked to me. And she talked to me because she knew she was innocent, And she talked to me because she knew that she could steer the story in a very fascinating way around to the truth and something more interesting. And, so she did. And, um, and what was her version of the story and her truth? Well, she didn't tell it all to me. And this is the, this is the thing uh, that I had. There is an edition of this book published in America, which has this afterword. And the afterword tells in explicit detail the things that she hinted at me, which was that she said that after the murder, when she was acquitted, um, he she all she said to him was he wrote me the most awful letter. He was a terrible man that was brought in. Um and what the letter said was um it was it was it's it was a very lascivious, it was a very obsessed, sexually jealous, furious letter that said, I watched you having sex with X and having sex with Voiristic uh after, after the murder. Um I thought you were gonna come back and they had this extraordinary time together They after the murder he, he wrote to somebody at home and said I decided to carry on as if nothing had happened I mean so they went he, off to
2: Sri Lanka didn't they
4: they went to Sri Lanka they, they went all over the place
3: so he's, he. she thinks he's probably killed her lover but she goes back with him and continues to yes, live as his wife she,
4: she, she's completely trapped she has no choice it is the, the war on. where can she go you know <clears throat> so she goes off with him And then she starts having other affairs and gets hold of Gilbert Colville, who is another big rancher. And so then he just goes mad and tries to blackmail her. And he blackmails her with an insurance fraud that he has done. He stole jewels that he bought her back, claimed the money off the insurance company, and had a friend of his hide them in a tree. And and then they returned to his lawyer in a security box. Diana didn't know this, but he's telling her, I know what's in that box that I gave you to take to the, he's, he's set her up for this thing. So he can say that she's stolen them and she will go to jail. And he says, if you don't come, come back with me and live with me in England, I am going to tell the police and you'll do hard labor. And uh, there's a paragraph here somewhere that I've got, um, which is fairly <clears throat> extraordinary. in which he said and also by the way his tone his rage against errol really is the last uh brick in the in the building of his guilt because it shows his rage at being humiliated by diana at the hands of errol is a theme that goes through this whole thing and he simply can't bear it and his rage explodes first in a murder and then in this and he says You've changed me into a fiend thirsting for vengeance. I think of nothing else day and night. I never sleep thinking of it. I'm determined to see you in the dock where I was last year because of your love affair with Joss Errol. I get bloodier minded every day. Well, if that doesn't tell you something, I don't know. Wow. What it does. wow. It's and amazing he got off.
2: More evidence came later, didn't it? Juanita Carberry, who was a young girl in the house, then confessed to someone only a few years ago that he had confessed to her the next day. Isn't that correct?
4: Well, I actually got Juanita's confession in White Mischief. I I knew that. I tracked her down, and it was the most astonishing moment, actually, of of this whole thing. I I went to see her, and, you know, in that sort of stuttery way one does, you introduce yourself, you say, I've come here to see, you know, I don't know who killed Lord Errol. And she said, oh, I can tell you that because he told me. And then she described the circumstances in which she'd met him at, uh, on his way back to his country place. Uh, and they'd looked at horses and things together. And he said, uh, he, he told her what he'd done.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
4: And he said he'd thrown the gun into the Thika Falls or something like that. And I I understand that. I understand he was... Who was she?
3: You said a young girl. I mean, she was a child She was
4: actually... She was the daughter, the stepdaughter of her father was called um was just known as Carberry it was a sort of um settler um sadist um whatever and his but his new wife why um June Carberry, was a big witness in the case and actually got those brought off she also knew in fact that he'd done it and but she said I couldn't let the old boy hang could I, I had to, I had to make up a story and gave him a, an alibi that night so Juanita was close to this whole thing,
3: and she was and, what, uh, a Teenager at the time? Of she the was. A, time. She
4: was fifteen. Yeah. He, she, he, he, know, confesses a, he confessed his guilt to.
3: He confessed his guilt to a child. Extraordinary. Yes.
4: Yeah, I, I, I can see the relief in that. They had an affinity, you know, family. He was probably desperate to get this off his chest and thinking that um, waiting to be arrested. Maybe he thought they were coming for it. Maybe. It wasn't until later he decided, I can get away with this, you know. I
2: mean, this all seems very clear-cut, but, I mean, there have been other theories over the years and other books published. Do you want to address some of those? I mean, I mean, uh, even if, uh, just to dismiss them.
4: Well, there have been quite a few. The most uh, the astonishing one was, um, she's a friend of mine. She's still alive. Uh, Errol Trubinsky, no relation to Lord Errol, um who I've known forever and, in fact, wrote a piece about her son was murdered. Uh, I wrote a piece about that, which they turned into another white mystery story that was a sort of, you know, more death than Happy Valley. She wrote a book before that. Um, and I remember and how,
2: what? Sorry, The Life and Death of Lord Errol.
4: Oh, the light and Death of Lord Errol. And she told me beforehand, she said, this is going to blow the world apart. I mean, this is really going to do incredible. I mean, the government's going to have to resign. I mean, things are going to really move on this one. And uh, I said, Oh, great, well, off you go. And she wrote this book. And it was it was incredible. It was a theory that MI5 had actually killed Errol. And she'd elaborated this whole plot and uh, the scenario in which people were buzzing around with motorbikes, making very loud noises around them, the Mathega Club and this and that. And one reviewer, I think Philip Knightley, the great spy writer, said, "If if any of this is true, I'll eat my hat." And one other reviewer said, um, "I think someone's had a word in her ear." Well, she, someone had had a word in her ear. It was someone in the Isle of Wight who knew the area quite well, who just put the whole story into her. It was a very cynical publishing operation, I thought, because the publishers must have known it was all bullshit and thought, you know, we can we can we can go with this anyhow.
2: And then there's another theory that this woman, Alice de Gencay, who confessed to, to um, killing Errol uh, and then committed suicide.
4: Oh, yeah.
2: I why so. That. Yeah,
4: that, that rumour was, was always flying about. And I read that book and there just wasn't any evidence in it. Um, Alice didn't, wasn't there. She, she didn't really, well, you could say that she had a motive but she wasn't around at, at the time. There was just no evidence of her being. She was up in in the One Valerie, uh, Valley Valley um, shooting smack basically at this point.
2: And then someone else has said that actually um, Lady Delamere Diana was a lesbian, and and is that is there any truth in that? I've, I've
4: never seen or heard any evidence of that. She certainly um, liked men very much, but uh, I've never heard of that. Um, I must say, I was fascinated, but we mustn't divert it into your work. But some of the strands of your recent research have fascinated me on, on that level.
2: Oh well, we can talk another.
3: Yes, talk over another time. time. Another time. Oh, no, we want to hear more about Mountbatten always
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and Trader King. But I mean, there was quite a lot of evidence on 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 Dale's Broughton's behalf. I mean, there was some white um, tennis shoes and things, and he which he burnt rather than give them to to. to to some of the staff, and presumably there were staff who had things to say.
4: Well, yes, I tracked down uh, one of Broughton's servants, Abdullah, who was actually a witness in the trial, and his evidence is, is in the transcript. I tracked him down at the coast to Malindi, and he was still, after all this time, so frightened he didn't want to speak to me. He thought, you know, this is Muslim business, and it's got nothing to, to do with me. I'm going to get in trouble so i didn 't get much from him um, and we've fact, we've,
3: t- we've talked a lot about the, the the prime suspect, the man who probably got away with murder we haven't you learned much about the victim here I mean, oh, was, he, was, was he somebody that a lot of people wanted to see killed? do you think that's why they didn't investigate
4: him very well no i don 't think so. I think he was quite popular he was a he was a bounder as they used to say lord Lord Carnarvon who I went to interview. Um, I one of the chapters is called The Greatest Pouncer of All Time because I said to him, what was what Errol like? Greatest panzer of All Time, a Pouncer, well, no, Pouncer, you know, pantsed on women,
2: <laughs> not safe in taxis, not safe, in not taxes. safe in
4: taxis, great Pouncer. Um, um, you know, um, and um, <laughs> he's brilliant. So, Errol, he was a sort of one of the lads, you know, military secretary, very handsome. Nobody could resist him. No woman could resist him. Um, I, he was a shit, yeah, but, but quite popular. Uh, I don't think anyone had a motive to actually kill him, except... Uh, no, I don't. <clears throat> Bill he,
2: he wasn't very popular, really, was he? I mean, brought- he was 30, yeah, mean He was 30 years older than Diana, and he was a rather sort of pathetic figure.
4: Yeah, he was a pathetic figure. He was very taciturn and he was quite boring and he and grand and arrogant. <clears throat> and as you can see from these letters, um <clears throat> had a very high opinion of himself. <clears throat> I talked to his son, Sir Evelyn Dells who said, you know, he was a horrible, cruel father, you know, putting down, shaming, all that kind of stuff. Um No, I think he was horrid, despicable and there was this whole thing about him sort of getting out of the First World War which Cyril Connolly liked, went into that at quite some length, you know Um, had he faked some stroke, you know, when he was on the ship in Portsmouth waiting to be shipped to France and so on. And Carnarvon said uh, he said Jock was a dishonest man. I mean, he was a he wasn't, a, you know, and he gambled and lost, and he, um, and and and, and he was dishonest, and he was, a, and and he he said he did this terrible insurance for He said, "I can understand a chap, you know, hungry, you know, grabbing a bun from a stall," but Jock was never hungry. You know, <laughs> he went on like. this.
2: And, I mean, he then eventually committed suicide, I mean, in, shortly after, I mean, or just after the war. Yes, so but you can see a picture of this of this man
4: now, insane with depression and fury and rage. And um, uh, because what Diana did when he tried to blackmail her, she took this letter that I have got here to the police in Nairobi. Uh, the woman who had this letter for years would never give it to me, um, she was the secretary of the, whatever the Lord Chief Justice of Nairobi was at the time. So she always had this letter. Diana took this to the police, the police, and told the police that um, she thought, she knew. And she'd all told Gordon to his face in the office of the lawyer, I, I think you murdered her. You know, I know that you murdered her. And she also told you that, that, uh, that about the insurance fraud. So when he got to Liverpool, the police were waiting for him with a criminal charge of fraud, and he couldn't take that anymore, and he had some laudanum on him, so he, he committed suicide in the Adelphi Hotel. So and
3: in Dan- Diana, got, Diana sort of took revenge for what he'd done to her lover.
4: I don't think she took revenge. I think she was defending her, her, herself. You know, she was defending herself from blackmail. She was calling him out. Um, that's what she was doing. And I liked her very much. So we met again when when um, White Mystery was being filmed in Nairobi. There was, I went to see her house. I went to, she invited me for lunch. And I went to this extraordinary classic colonial interior with the silver pheasants on the table and all this kind of stuff and there at the end one end was diana and she put me at the other end and she was looking at me in these blue eyes that she still had and at one point we looked at each other and she just winked, one wink as if we've understood each other how amazing that was
3: fantastic what did she think of the film because of course she was portrayed by the stunning greta scatchy wasn't she
4: yeah, I didn't get to her to ask her about that. She would have been incredibly flattered. That, that's how she saw herself. Greta Skaki, you
2: know. Oh, I mean, she, she became a big, big figure in, in, in Kenya. I mean, Lord Delamere was one of the major sort of figures out there, probably the richest man in Africa was suppose. Well, to. Well, that,
4: that's what I find so fascinating about this. You know, the Kenya settlers weren't like the, the earlier settlers weren't like the settlers in Uganda and Tanzania. They were from a sort of toppered Higher draw. These are the aristocrats. And I always thought that when they saw this landscape, they thought, my God, it's wonderful. It's Wiltshire. It's the Marlborough Downs. It's Scotland. You know, it reminds us of our ancestral lands. I mean, we must grab it. We must have it and it's ours, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had this extraordinary atmosphere there, which, which went on.
2: Well, Errol called his house Staines, didn't he? After yes, he the, called it Slains, the, the castle thing. in Scotland, this, uh, this thing, and they all had this
4: stuff. And um, I can't remember your question now, but it's got something to do with this, with the settlers and the landscape. And the well,
2: how she basically, you know, became the wealthiest yes. woman in Africa.
4: Yes, she married. Uh, 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 well, first of all, she got. Um, Uh, Gilbert Colville who was very rich, had lots of land then she moved from Gilbert Colville she elided from one great lander to another great lander as was her skill and ended up with Tom Denimer and the sort of honorary white queen of Kenya and the relationship between the white settlers and Kenyatta and so on was remarkable I mean Kenyatta used to go, uh, the first prime minister, the first president of a, he used to go and take his picnics on the Delamere estates. You know, there was this sort of entente between. Well, them.
3: yes, well, because we haven't spoken about this aspect, because, of course, in the 50s, there's this incredibly brutal war. It yes. Takes place, I mean, war, uh, war of when the British 30
4: Europeans were killed and 200,000 Africans. And awful. Tortured, t-
3: so many, that's still being, I know, the Obama family
4: are drawn into that, are they not? I think
3: they are. And it then, might. and then you know, do they just carry on? Does the new independent government does it just let them live as they? Well, I mean, there it? was
4: there was a, an extraordinary forgiving atmosphere when I was there as a young reporter. Um, uh, they'd been, they'd, the British government had done a thing they didn't do in uh, Rhodesia, uh, Zimbabwe, which is they'd actually done big settlements. They'd uh, financed the, and assisted the sale of a lot of these lands to the uh, African, it was the African elite who bought all these lands, which is now causing big trouble because for for various reasons, but it was, they just, um, unlike the Congo, unlike Mozambique. And like many of the, these other colonies, it was actually rather a smooth transition. And I think a lot of the settlers thought nothing had changed, but of course it was changing. And, the, uh, and you talked earlier about the uh, Mau Mau and, and so on, and the fact that these resentments and this fury and the hatred of how they'd been treated by the British colonial o- o- authorities I never saw it. It never surfaced. There was much more Internecine warfare between the tribe, the Kikuyu, and and the Luo, and and scrambling for the wealth now available in this place. It's funny. It's it's
3: not the best advert for the British Empire, this story, really, is it? But I've been reading some diaries from Indian soldiers from the Second World War for a project I'm working on, and uh, it's all the way through this idea of the British. Well, there's two things. Why do they use toilet paper? That's a big one. And the second one is, why are they so sex mad? You know, the idea in India as well, there's endless sexual scandals going on all the time. And this well, was the Cyril, idea that the colonized people had of us, I think.
4: Yeah, well, Cyril Coveney, in his rather sort of um, incorrect way, said Africa, rather granted, Africa liberates unacted desires. Which <laughs> a phrase you couldn't get away with now. Um, no, well, there was a
3: TV series, if you remember, about 20 years ago called Imperial Passions, about just this, about how a lot of people went abroad to indulge in things that they probably couldn't indulge in in Britain.
4: They still do. I, I then wrote, when this boy, not a boy, a man, Trubinsky was shot, Errol Trubinsky's son, I went and did a piece for Vanity Fair about it. And I saw the remnants of of this settler thing. There were two two sides to it. And I wrote about them, and I wrote about a sort of kind of hedonistic world of, it was a lot of war correspondence. They used to, like we used to use Beirut in the old days, the sort of R&R place or place to, quite central, that you could go for all, all over the world of fun. And I got this furious letter, or Dick Graydon Carter got this letter, the editor of Vanity Fair, from Aidan Hartley, who was who had a column in The Spectator called Wildlife. He got a farm in Kenya, and it was 5,000 words. Graydon never read it. It was just too long, basically. But it was absolute fury that I had somehow, because all the other press had, of course, linked this murder with white mystery, but I was trying to explain their relationship, that some of these young whites were still using the place as a sort of place of excitement and frontier and danger and risk of which there was much more by this time because everybody was armed and there was a lot of violence um it was the longest letter of complaint I think has ever been written apart from Prince Harry's book but um it <laughs> certainly uh, and but then I realized that actually there's another thing that's going on which is some of the people there the whites who are third generation, they, they consider it, well, this is where I was born and this is where my grandfather was born. And so I'm going to stay here, you know, the best I can. I'll find a way of doing it. A lot of them have become tenant farmers to the Kikuyu nobility, as it were, it's sort of switched around. And they become, you know, they run their farms for them or they work there. And um, that sort of, that's, that works. And when Tom Delamere, the last... Lord Delamere that I remember was jailed for shooting uh, a poacher. I thought this is the moment when the Kenyan government is going to use the opportunity to just seize the entire ranch. It's a huge ranch. It's, It's massive. It goes on forever. It's like a country within a country. And they didn't. And maybe one of the reasons was that they always thought of this kind of stability thing in like don't go the way Mugabe went, you know that didn't work mm,
3: no, of course, That's so
4: interesting um on the other hand, you know it's there's a lot of pressure on everybody it's there's land hunger, there's violence there's there's you know um rather like here, nobody's spent any money on you know the infrastructure, so people are getting very edgy.
2: And do you think that there's anything more to, to 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 emerge in the story? I mean, or do you think, as you say, you've practiced? I mean, what people thought at the time is exactly what happened.
4: Well, what's wonderful about this story, like all unsolved mysteries, like the Lucan mystery, let's say, which I also covered, is there's still this little chink of doubt which, which keeps it running. It's a little motor that, that keeps it running. So I'm still speculating occasionally, how did he actually get out of the house and Was his fury so great that he could, on his gammy leg, which is like run down the road and actually pull the trigger? What does it take to shoot someone? If you've never, you know, first of all, (laughs) um, he didn't, you know, he he refused to fight in the First World War. Did this guy have the guts to pull the trigger? And yes, I think, on the whole, his anger was so great that uh, that's what he did. But there's still this little element of. You just want to know the details. You want to see the video, you know. You want to see that illuminated little shadow on the video coming out of the house, walking down to the thing, pulling the trigger,
2: and so on. So, so there was a man called Doctor Ethan Phillip who who claimed to have driven him. Do you know the story that Christine Nichols had?
4: Um, no, I don't know the story, and there's no evidence for it. But I love stories, right? What I love is, too, in unsolved mysteries, you get a massive sort of rumor factory going, you know. And one rumor is even more, is more wonderful than the next. And Errol Trebinski's book is full of these kind of rumors. Um, and uh, the trouble is, they don't really they don't really add up. Um, there was also the rumor that, yes, there was the rumor that he was killed by by the as because he'd been a traitor to the Mosleyite fascists, you know, because he... Rene oh, yes, we, got,
3: missed, we missed that detail. He, he was a bit of a Nazi yeah. as well, this man, wasn't he? He had been, yes. He had been
4: a sort of a subscriber. Just to complete
3: to the portrait of a total ship. Yeah,
4: he had. He'd been a sort, yeah. sort John of... John Mosley. Mm. Yeah, Mosley. He thought that was the British unit of, of fascists. He actually went on a couple of rallies, I think. Whether there's a picture of Errol in his black shirt, brown shirt, whatever shirt they wore, those guys in the East End. I don't know. Um, I don't think we would have liked Lord O'Reilly much, us three. Maybe we would. I don't know. doubt it.
2: Oh, I love rogues. (laughs) Andrew Andrew loves a rogue. (laughs) (laughs) Because
4: he's so conventional and boring himself. Hmm. Um, Yeah, that was... What was it? Um, Yes, well...
2: That's probably uh, a good
4: place to end.
3: I it mean, is a
2: good
4: place.
3: But we seem to be making a sort of special feature in this podcast of, 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 of strange crimes in odd corners of the British Empire. Because
4: we, um, well, we, we did that the Oaks
3: it. murder recently.
4: Oh, Harry Oaks. Wonderful. William Boyd's a great fan of the Harry Oaks murder. And, yep. and I also I can tell you anything about the Lord Lucan murder because I covered that. And so ah.
2: really. Well, we must have you back. We've had and Laura L'Oreal. Thompson on. What? And funnily enough, this morning I had someone approach me wearing my agent's hat who's got a solution, another solution to Lucan claiming Veronica did it. <laughs> so that's another one that keeps on giving.
4: Yeah, yep. that's so
3: good. I love We're that. We're never going to run out of material if we, if we study the misbehaviour of rich British
4: people. By the way, my my grandfather appears in in your book, Andrew, the one that you sent me. It's very good. Your book, I haven't finished it, but it's really well written. It's so oh. entertaining, enjoyable, it's fabulous. It's got oh, thank you, endless detail. Yeah. No, Nobody I, should buy Andrew's books. They must well, be jumping up and down. Those courtiers must be furious. Well, they are furious.
2: <laughs> they are. Yes, they've
4: got <laughs> they the know, little what's... effigy of you with pins <laughs> sticking
2: out. <laughs> Wait till they read the Prince Andrew.
4: Yes, my my my, my grandfather appears in in your book uh you'll be amazed to hear his name is bob brandt he was he ran oh a,
2: absolutely and he, he appears with john mission. bucken john bucken as well yes so gosh we must discuss it when we meet up well we will meet up soon I think. well we're going to have a summer party
3: and you're invited oh great you're going to have a summer party that's excellent At
2: chelsea arts club
3: cheese um, onion crisps a couple of bottles of warm white wine Night,
4: yeah, great. <laughs> whatever. are <Can't> great. <Whatever>. <laughs> See you later. Thanks. Great. Thanks so thanks
2: much, Jim. Great to talk hey, to you. you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandal Mongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandal Mongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio.